Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're continuing our interview with Anne Chesky Smith, author of Murder at Asheville's Battery Park Hotel The Search for Helen Clevenger's Killer, published by the History Press. Last week, we had the perfect recipe for murder a dark and stormy night, a labyrinthine hotel, gunshots, a mystery assailant, and more. Today, Anne takes us deeper into the mystery of Clevenger's murder and its impacts for women and women's history years later. Anne, welcome back to Crime Capsule. We are so glad to have you. Glad to be back. Where we left off last week, this case was almost at a standstill. Helen Clevenger was murdered only a few days prior to the entire investigation grinding to a halt. Flurry of activity, lead after lead after lead coming up, nothing. And Sheriff Lawrence Brown is in some serious hot water. There's no one he's been able to firmly tie to this particular case. What happened when Erwin Pittman suddenly remembered something that he had conveniently forgotten as one of the only witnesses that night? Yeah, so so Erwin Pittman had seen someone, a man, in Helen's doorway right after 1 a.m. So right at 1 a.m., he sees someone in the doorway. He you know, he's heard the scream. He goes out to investigate and sees this person in the doorway and thinking that that person is a guest says, you know, I wonder what that noise was. And then the person replies, as Erwin Pittman had originally told law enforcement, that's what I was wondering too. Now, you know, it's been a, a, the, the investigation has stalled. And then there's a couple different stories of how Erwin Pittman ends up back at the sheriff's department two weeks later. He lives in Raleigh. He had just been, you know, staying in the, in the hotel as he was a bank examiner. He'd just been there for, for the night. And so he ends up back at the sheriff's office and he, he either came there of his own accord or the sheriff called him. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a few men in the room when, the, when this happens. And he says, either after extensive questioning uh, and possibly leading by the detectives um, <laughs> yep. or of his own accord where we're not sure we weren't in the room, but he eventually says, you know, I think what the person said that I talked to in the doorway who, um, you know, he had originally described as, as fairly short. He thought he was white, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He says, I think what he actually said was, it's what eyes wondering or some variation of that. And at this moment, someone, either Sheriff Lawrence Brown or someone in the room has this epiphany. Oh, well, that's how a black person would speak, not a white person. So it must have been a black person that was in the room that night because it's what I was wondering versus that's what I was wondering are two very different uh, you know, syntaxes and how we speak. And so uh, immediately they shift the investigation to look exclusively at black men and really at black employees, because under the insu- assumption that 
the only black men in the hotel um, that would not have been noticed were black mm-hmm. employees since it was a segre- you know segregated society at the time. And so they bring in and question all all the black male employees who were who were there um, around the building that that day and uh, that evening. So you write that there are about twenty six black employees that are brought in for questioning. And after a sort of series of probably fairly grueling interrogations of each one, uh, they narrow it down to about five potential persons of interest and then down further to three. So tell us about Banks Taylor, Martin Moore, and Lem Roddy. So they end up narrowing it down to Banks and Lim. And Lim has already been in for questioning a a few times um, based on some some other things that he had been associated with in the hotel that were, you know, fairly innocuous. He had taken some women up to the rooftop garden in the elevator and and they uh, had asked him to move some chairs and and the, the boss said, you know, you, the elevator was up there too long. What what were you doing with those, you know, those white women? Um, and so, you know, they're all three black men and they end up getting taken aside because they are known to own weapons. And this is another big sticking point in the case at this point is that they have not discovered the murder weapon. Um, they have the bullet from Helen's that they found in her chest and the shell casing. And it's it's a pretty unique bullet. Um, they try to match it to where it would have been purchased. It has a star um, and, and some other markings on it that they eventually decide is some kind of outlaw bullet, um, I guess off-brand, that's not sold in the city. So they, they are not able to figure out you know, where the bullet came from or even exactly the type of make and model that it might have been shot from, only that maybe the gun and the bullet didn't exactly match up. Um, and that's maybe why the gun jammed and why the murderer had to, to hit Helen in the face rather than shoot her a second time. Um, so they really are looking for this murder weapon. Um, the fact that they, they don't have it is, is um, really making things difficult. I mean, they even have Boy Scouts offer to come out and scour the area looking for, for this weapon. They dump over the humidor. I mean, they just are looking anywhere this could possibly be and they, they've come up empty handed. Mm. So they assume that whoever did this still has the gun in their possession. So they bring in Banks Taylor because he's known to own a gun and Lamb because he's also no, uh, known to own a, a weapon and they, mm-hmm. they grill them. Now what the definition of that is, is, is kind of unknown at this point, how hard they grill them. This was certainly a time of forced, to beatings, confessions, strong interrogations, and not that that's not still going on. I mean, police can st- can still lie to people who are under investigation and interrogate them uh, pretty hardcore over a long period of time. So there are definitely parallels to, to things that we still see today. So we're not sure exactly what grilling means in, in, in this instance, but eventually Banks Taylor comes up with this um, says, why are you pestering me so much? Martin Moore owns a gun. And so they go over, it's the middle of the night at this point, they go over mm-hmm. um, and Martin is a hall boy, what they call a hall boy, basically a janitor at the hotel. He's 22 years old. 
He has about a sixth grade education, moved to Asheville from Spartanburg when he was pretty young with his mother. And he lives with his mother in, uh, on Hill Street, which is a historically black neighborhood in Asheville that was eventually bulldozed for the highway to go through. Um, and that's a whole other story. But um, he lives there with his mother, very close to the hotel, um, certainly within walking distance which is why the hotel was also a huge employer of folks who, who lived on Hill Street. But they go over in the middle of the night, wake him up from a, from a deep sleep um, and say, where's the gun you killed that girl with? And he, you know, he eventually he says, I don't have a gun. And eventually, according to law enforcement anyway, he says, well, my gun is under the house. Mm-hmm. And Tom Brown, the, the sheriff's brother, Deputy Tom Brown, is the one who eventually crawls underneath their house and finds this gun Um, and he says it's got blood and hair on it we found the murder weapon and martin says well yes that's my gun but lem roddy had it the night of the murder and i just got it back and i was scared so i hit it i hit it under the house and so they immediately arrest him take him to the courthouse and put him in with banks and lem and let them kind of wait it out, um, sit there all together. And uh, at this point, also, the New York detectives have arrived. Okay, so Anne, I have to confess, as I was reading your account, when these officers take these suspects over to Martin Moore's house, you write like a novelist, and I was sort of expecting them, quite frankly, not to find the murder weapon. And when they actually did, it actually it felt more like a twist than anything else almost to date in the book. You know, I I sort of thought, you know, lead after lead is running dry. Nobody is actually able to tie this. We've got an unknown assailant who has actually fled in the middle of the night. It could have been a drifter. It could have been anybody, right? At this point, we have nothing concrete to go on. And pardon my French, but holy crap, suddenly there's actually a piece of evidence, which is a critical piece of evidence, which shows up. And you write that the bullet casing that was found in Helen's hotel room in room two, on the floor of room 224 does actually match the casings of the bullets that are in the chamber of this particular... It's a 38, 38 special, is that what it was? Um, so here we have the smoking gun that is really just barely not smoking anymore, right? I mean, it, but it is... It is there's... There's a piece of incontestable proof here. This, these casings are so unique that they're not found anywhere else. And here's a weapon that matches the caliber. I was, I was floored. I really did not see that coming, I, I have to confess. Well, and, you know, this is a huge point of contention, um, especially, you know, if you are a believer that the police are looking for a scapegoat. And I know a lot of people are, I think I'm, I'm in that camp as well. Um, I really tried to keep, I tried to keep myself out of the book. <laughs> it was not easy to do. Um, Cause it's very easy to have strong opinions about this case. Um, but this is the piece of physical evidence. This is the only piece of physical evidence that they really have tying anyone to the murder. And so a lot of people believe that the gun was planted. 
Mm-hmm. I have mixed feelings about that, mostly because Martin Moore always sticks to his story that he had lent the gun to Lim Roddy that night, that he did not have the gun in his possession. He never denies that it could be, that it wasn't his gun, um, but he does deny that it was in his possession that evening. So they take Martin into the courthouse. They sit him in the room with Banks Taylor and Lim Roddy. Banks, who has kind of said, you know, this is who you need to look at. Lim, who is supposedly the one who had the gun that night. And they say to them, you all need to sit here together. They're all handcuffed together and decide who who is going to take the heat for this. Who is Who did this? And they have some audio recording equipment or audio. It's not recording, but they can listen in. Uh, and so they all are listening into this conversation between, between these three men and, you know, their banks and Roddy are telling Martin to confess. And he's saying, I can't confess. I didn't do anything. And then one of the New York detectives who's arrived on the scene bursts into the room and says, Martin Moore, We've got your fingerprints on this light bulb. We know you killed that girl. You need to confess. And at that point, they take him again into a separate room and interrogate him. Um, What happens in that room is still another huge point of contention that comes up repeatedly at trial. But after a long night of questioning, Martin does sign a confession that he went to Helen's room that night to uh, rob her, didn't realize she was there. When she was there, he shot, beat her in the face. And then the details of his confession pretty much match up with what the witness accounts say after the murderer left the room and escaped and jumped over the balcony. With the notable exception that the dis- the physical description of the assailant that, that came from several different sources even if skin color was difficult to ascertain, maybe in a low light setting, they all sort of suggested stockier, not extremely tall, and, you know, maybe medium weight, whereas Martin Moore is quite tall and quite lanky, you describe. So there's just a, a real kind of, there's two points of significant divergence here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's 6'3", he's, yeah, he's just got... This is a very tall, skinny frame. His arms just look impossibly long, mostly because he also, the style of the day is that his pants are very high along his waist when you see pictures of him. So it makes his arms look very long. Um, yeah. You know, certainly, you know, you could see him playing basketball, um, being, being close up to the, to the net. But he, and he's, you know, he's got huge hands, but he's, he's a kid. And, you know, he has a sixth grade education. A lot of people describe him as being mentally disabled, but, you know, he may have just, only, you know, he could read and write. He he talks about that. So, but yeah, he's a very different physical type than what witnesses saw. And before the, the you know, the law enforcement offers, before Sheriff Brown releases that he's made this arrest to the press, he has Martin Moore go through this entire reenactment of the crime mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. based on the confession and that more than anything because they published the reenactment in the paper uh, from the court what the court stenographer writes down so there's this almost verbatim transcript of what transpires in that hotel before reporters are even notified that this is happening and there are a number of 
really, it's incredible that these still exist, but um, photographs uh, detailing and in, in detail showing him going through this reenactment. And it's really telling um, when you look at the transcript, you know, it's a lot of like, yes, yes. Um, you know, they say, did you do this? Yes, I did that. You know, he's not providing any of the, the detail. He's agreeing with them. And you even see this in the confession and you see this a lot. Um, I'm, I'm not a <laughs> law enforcement uh, historian, but you see this a lot when you look at media and things about forced confessions of people just saying after this amount of time being interrogated, what they know they, what the officers want to hear in the thought that they're going to get to go home after this. If I just do what they say, I'm going to get to go home. I'm going to, uh, or, or they're going to be lenient to me. You know, I can't fight this. They have my fingerprints, which they didn't on, on the light bulb. You know, I'm going to go down for this, even though, I, even if I didn't do it. And so you see this reenactment and when he does something that's like a little off, like he doesn't place the light bulb in the right place, or he doesn't hit the um, person who's doubling as Helen in the right place. They say, well, are you sure it was there or was it, was it here? And he says, oh, yes. And then for me too, the most telling part of this reenactment is that when he goes to escape from the hotel and shows them how he escaped that night, he goes down the same stairway, but he ends up um, going through the ballroom, which is like a half a level above where the manager's office is. So he doesn't escape into the manager's office, which is what all the uh, employees and witnesses had seen. He goes into the, to the ballroom. And then where he goes over the banister, where they saw the murderer or the alleged murderer go over the, whoever it was that night, go over the banister, it's at a much lower level. It's a half a level down from... Mm-hmm the ballroom level. And so it's a much shorter jump. It is over a crazy staircase, which still exists, that goes down into the basement. So he makes this kind of leap, um, the murderer does, over to the street. But Martin goes out the ballroom and goes to the corner of the hotel, which is a lot further to the ground, and um, like half the distance of the hotel um, away from where they where they saw it that night, and he had instead so he can't jump off of it because it's very far. He has to kind of crawl down the side of the hotel, and of course at that point the reporters have gathered to watch him do this, um, and even a, and they were they eventually do report it. Um, it comes out as a special edition of the paper that afternoon. It sells more copies than it even did when the Lindbergh baby was found. And so this is, you know, this is huge news. And what's really interesting to me is that like a year after this, one of the reporters who was there that day is writing some unrelated article about how being a newspaper reporter isn't as glamorous as it seems. And like buried way down in the article, like way into the paper is this, this snippet of, I was there when Martin Moore was reenacting the murder and the escape. And none of us thought he did it. And that's, you know, that's all it says. But it was just interesting to get that perspective um, a year out from there. You know, it, it really struck me that you call it a more or less successful reenactment. And it was almost like the emphasis was on the less <laughs> because Martin didn't have any idea of what took place that night. I mean, he was just being coerced, you know, into this and sort of required and and 
fed these answers so that justice could seem to be done. And I think it's worth really pausing on this for just a minute to remember that this is the Jim Crow South, that there are absolutely different standards of justice for white and black communities. And you write that just five months earlier, the United States Supreme Court had judged a case and determined, it was uh, Brown versus the state of Mississippi, that coerced confessions could not be used in court. They were not admissible. You know, police can't beat the confession out of you and then take that into the courtroom and say, oh, yeah, he said he did it. So, you know, now we, now we believe him. It took it all the way to the Supreme Court for, for that standard to be established in our justice system. And it had just passed. And yet the Asheville Police Department was using these tactics of intimidation and aggression and in some case physical violence against Martin Moore to produce this and they were just doing it blithely as though they had never heard of the United States Supreme Court at all. Well, and this is too another kind of con- I don't know if controversial is the right word, but it's one of the another one of these sticking points because it doesn't come out until the trial that Martin says he was beaten into confession. And the trial is a whole other very biased <laughs> occurrence. But it doesn't come out till then that he says he was beaten into confession. And he specifically blames the beating on the New York detectives, that it was, you know, him, one of the New York detectives, and actually the sheriff's brother, Tom Brown, that were the two aggressors. And Lawrence Brown, the sheriff, does admit that he did promise Martin that he would talk to the judge, some kind of leniency if he would, you know, get this off his chest. Um, but that's all that Sheriff Brown admits to, and no one else admits to, to anything else. But certainly, we can be pretty sure that there was definitely some violence that occurred in that room. Let me ask you, once Martin is returned to prison and the pretrial proceedings get underway and jury selection takes place, which is a farce. I mean, um, anyone who could be remotely considered his peer is immediately excluded. He's going to be tried by a bunch of good old white boys, you know, and they're going to make sure that this black guy is put away for good, right? That's very apparent from the start. I was struck by your depiction of Martin almost as having given up from the start. I mean, he's he's been forced into this confession. It's been exacted from him. He didn't make it voluntarily. And his demeanor changes so much. You know, some folks who know that they're being brought in on trumped-up charges are defiant and willing to fight it and, you know, have this kind of steel spine that they carry with them all the way to the end. But Martin, Martin has a really hard time in custody. And I was really moved by your account of his struggle. Can you help us to just understand what was going through his mind at the time or why this reaction became so apparent? And unfortunately, you don't get to hear Martin's voice very often. Um, There's a few snippets that the reporters pick up, specifically some moments where he actually has a little bit of a a sense of humor. Um, It's a very dark sense of humor about it. But he does kind of seem not entirely resigned to his fate, but more like, if I just keep doing what they're asking me to do, Mm -hmm. things will be okay. 
He's putting his, obviously putting his trust in the wrong people, but he's been, you know, brought up in this world where the system is against him from the beginning. And even one of the employees of the Battery Park Hotel, who in the 80s gives an interview, um, and every interview that I found with, with Booker T. Sherrill, who, was, who worked at the Battery Park for his whole career and ended up actually living um, in the hotel when it became apartments. Every interview he gives, he always brings up this murder. It was, you know, it was huge. And he says, you know, I didn't think Martin did it. I, I thought he was a scapegoat, but you don't speak up and work here and do well. And so, you know, he, even though he, he had these thoughts, you know, he knew he would be fired if he said anything. He would lose his livelihood or or he would be brought in for questioning and potentially become the scapegoat. And so that was, I think, very apparent to everyone that that was how the system was built uh, at the time. And so Martin, you know, he and what really hurts him is that he continually confesses. He doesn't confess once. Every time he thinks somebody is has, has been sent up either by the sheriff or by um, the man who eventually becomes the prosecutor, every time they come up or it's someone that he thinks that they've sent, he confesses again because he thinks that's that, that that's how he's going to get leniency is that by being a, a good boy and telling them what they want to hear. And so he'll alternatively um, say he'll deny everything to some people and then the sheriff's representatives come in and he'll confess again. And that really works against them and, and works again. You see parallels today of people who have been coerced into confessing and that is the evidence against them. Um, you know, juries think if they confess, they must, why would someone confess if they didn't do it? But then you watch these interrogation techniques and I mean, how can anyone withstand that? Um, you just tell them what they want to hear to make things stop now. So let's take a look at the trial. Martin is assigned a public defender who does not want to do the job. It is totally perfunctory for this attorney, and he makes no secret of what he thinks of his own client's guilt or innocence. This is about a month now after Helen was killed. We're in the sort of the middle of August as things are beginning to, to take shape in the courtroom. And um, the prosecution assembles its witnesses and they even call Sheriff Brown to the stand. There's a sort of fairly dramatic series of moments. What transpires over the course of those days? It, can you describe for us the strategies of both the prosecution and the defense? Sure. So. You know, the trial starts a week after Martin has been arrested. They have a week to prepare for trial. All these confessions that he's made have been made without a lawyer present. Um, when he finally is assigned a lawyer, he's assigned. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I came up as the director at the Swan and Noah Valley Museum in Black Mountain. So I knew the rel I, kn I still know um, some of them have passed away now, but the relatives of both Sheriff Brown and Scroop Stiles, who was who was the attorney, um, so he's assigned these court-appointed lawyers who have days to come up with a defense. The defense focuses on they do bring up the Martin's allegations of being beaten, um, and they do even bring up a janitor at um, the courthouse who says that 
a length of rubber hose was missing from his janitorial closet. And Martin says that he had been beaten with a rubber hose. So they do bring up a few of these things. Their main witness is Martin himself. And, you know, they ask him about what happened and where he was. And he says, well, I was, you know, I was at my girlfriend's party. And they bring up the girlfriend um, and several other people who were at the party who testify that, yes, he was at the party. And then, of course, the prosecution is just all about all these cross-examinations. They bring up, you know, his alibi witnesses. They say, well, they've been arrested for alcohol, so they can't be trusted. And, of course, they're also... Uh, black women and men. And so their word is, is not taken uh, very well by the jury um, who is all white men. You know, they, they've gone through this whole kind of facade of drawing 150 men. Of course, there was one black man uh, that was potentially eligible to serve on the jury that had been drawn from the jury box. And he came with a doctor's note that said he, he couldn't serve. And, and, and likely for good reason. There is evidence that there was intimidation, uh, at very least, if not violence, against Black men who came to serve on, on juries in Montgomery County. And, you know, the prosecution just uses incredibly racist language, even just in his prosecution and, and uh, cross-examination, and, and ends up in his cross-examination of Martin, basically taking, they do throw the initial confession out because they say coerced confessions can't be used. But then the subsequent confessions where Martin is confessing to to these people who, who Sheriff Brown has sent, they're able to use those. But he, the prosecutor uses these confessions, I mean, uses these transcripts of like the reenactment to ask questions and say, did you do this during the reenactment? And tries to catch him in some kind of, uh, you know, syntactical trap. And uh, Martin really doesn't realize what's happening. But the the audience, and of course, you know, there's this huge audience of observers at standing room only. People are packed in to watch this trial. Um, and so everybody's kind of gasping that Martin's, you know, implicated himself just by um, agreeing that that that's what he did in the reenactment. That's not what he did in life, but that's eventually how they get him. And uh, well, get him. They they've had him the whole time. That you know, there's there's really not been a chance. Um, yeah, and Scroop Styles has been very vocal from the beginning in front of the jury that he is doing this because it's his obligation as a defense attorney. And when the jury deliberates, they deliberate for less than an hour, um, and they come back with a guilty verdict and the automatic penalty is death. There's no other option. And, and what's even worse is that they tried him on the murder charge, but he also had a burglary charge as well. And so if he'd somehow been acquitted on the murder charge, he could have been tried on the burglary charge penalty for guilt. And that would also have been the death penalty which is that's extraordinary insane it's interesting because you see the wider politics of the justice system emerging in this trial and in other ways to you know the other employees Lemorati Banks Taylor Sheriff Brown looks at this and and he says you know well if we can get Martin maybe we can also start charging these guys with things like accessory after the fact because they knew something about the weapon or maybe they helped to hide the weapon or 
you get the sense of, you know, the sheriff just piling on the black community at this point. And, and still nothing conclusive was ever established tying any one of these men to the actual crime. And that doesn't matter to Sheriff Brown. He is interested in other things. He's interested in his political career. He knows he's got this reelection campaign coming up. And as is so often the case, we've looked at this in other, other instances around the Jim Crow South, the interest is in maintaining the status quo, ensuring that order remains. And I wanted to ask you, was there ever, as you were examining these sources, did you think there was ever any real hope for Martin Moore in this particular trial? Did you ever think that there was a, a chance that one technicality or one aspect of, say, the, the coerced confession could have just at the very least resulted in a mistrial, even if not an initial you know, conviction? You know, even though I, I knew from the beginning, just because of the nature of how my research progressed, what happened to Martin, you know, there's still that hope. And I think, you know, we see this when we even when we rewatch movies, we you know, we've watched before that we hope, you know, this this time that something different happens, that we see this this sense of just injustice and kind of self-righteous anger against what's happening and that it has to it has to be different this time, even though we know it's not going to be just because, you know, of the nature of it. But there's always this hope that, you know, maybe this, maybe this time that I, that I look at it and think about it, there will be a different outcome. But, you know, it's, it's hopeless at that point. There is some back and forth before his execution. Uh, he is sentenced to death. And there is there's a period of a few weeks uh, between the moment of his sentencing and the date of his execution, there are some delays, there are some appeals that go forth. Uh, none of them, unfortunately, are effectual. And there are also no real further breaks in the case. I mean, we don't have any evidence turning up. We don't have any sort of surprise witness testimony that wants to retract anything that that had been said or other people remembering certain things like Erwin Pittman claimed he did. And the execution becomes, for this community in Western North Carolina, it becomes a destination event, doesn't it? It's just so sad. They just want to see this man put to death because they have already decided that he did it. And they actually don't care. If, if there is another story out there, if there is a truth that could be uncovered, do they? Right. So the, the local NAACP actually takes up Martin's case. His other court-appointed lawyer, so Scroop Stiles, rotates off the cases right before the, the verdict is announced. Um, or no, after the verdict, but before the sentencing is announced. And so he's got this other court-appointed lawyer who does try to appeal, but then files the appeal late. And eventually it comes down to you know, the governor is the only one who can pardon Martin. But the NAACP takes up his case and goes to the to the warden at the jail who ultimately kind of advises the governor on what to decide. And, and they just say, we don't want to stand in the way of justice being served if Martin did this. But there are lots of points of this case that we have questions about and we don't want to see an innocent man die. We just need more time. Give us more time. We have an idea that there is another person who could have committed this crime. And there are 
these rumors all through the trial of this. It comes up as the son of a prominent white man. There's these just various rumors that appear in different places that maybe the perpetrator is the son of a prominent white man. And I think that's what the NAACP is looking at. But because of libel laws at the time, they can't publish any names. There's, there's criminal penalties associated with it. Um, so it's still unclear to me at, right even now you know, who they might have been referring to. But they definitely had questions and they just wanted more time to look into it. Um, that's all they, I felt like that's probably all they felt like they could ask for and, and potentially get because of how the system worked that, you know, they were asking for, for the bare minimum and they, they could, they wouldn't be granted it. Um, the governor did not pardon Martin and he ended up in the gas chamber. December 1936, this is now about five months after Helen had died. He is uncommonly resigned to his fate, isn't he, in his last weeks? Yeah, he gets to the point, and, and sometimes people will come by and ask him about it, and he, is, he still denies it, but he tells them, they're, you know, come back. They're going to be putting an innocent man to death. I'm going to tell you what's going on. He says something to the effect of, like, I wish Lim Roddy would just tell the truth. But, yeah, I mean, he, he asks basically at the end, as the his execution date approaches, he asks for religious literature, um, a Baptist minister to come and baptize him. He's baptized in a bathtub at the jail or at the prison, at the central prison in Raleigh. Um, and, of course, this is all reported on. And, you know, the central prison is just a horrible place. I mean, I'm sure it's not a great place today, but it was really in disrepair at that point. It was December. It was freezing. The roof was leaking. And he walks, you know, the short distance to the gas chamber. His family isn't able to, to make it. Um, all the, the tickets for the execution, which is just grotesque that there are tickets to execution, are given to uh, the law enforcement officers from the, the county and the city. Um, so he's, you know, he's alone when he goes in there. The ministers come and um, start singing a hymn, which he kind of joins in. He's obviously terrified, crying as he's, as he's strapped into the chair. And it's just, it's a horrific way. It's a horrific way to die. And it, and it's over, but not easily. He, it, it's it's pretty traumatic to, to even read about. I can't imagine uh, being there. I want to take a look at some of the aftermaths here on Crime Capsule. We always try to hold those in view as we look at these cases. After Martin dies, the case almost fades from view entirely, doesn't it? I mean, it just disappears. The sensation is over. The drama is over. And... According to this white community in Western North Carolina, justice has been served, and that's it. And Helen's family, of course, is in, they're totally distraught uh, as far as the loss of their last living child goes, and the, they sort of retreat inwards, and we don't hear much from them after that. But the case just goes totally quiet for the next 50, 60 years, doesn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, after the trial is over, you see a few reports of what, what Martin's doing in prison. But then after the execution, 
And there are, what's interesting too, is there are, you know, white run papers and black run papers and the black run papers don't really pick up the case until they switch to look at black employees. And so, but right after Martin is executed, like the next day, the um, black run papers start running this article by William Pickens, who's a black journalist and social justice activist. And he says, you know, he points out all the problems that we've already talked about, about the the height and weight from the witnesses, the racist way that Erwin Pittman rephrased what he heard, you know, all these all these various problems that we've already kind of picked apart. But what he says is there was a maid in Asheville and this was not reported in any of the papers. And he mentions that and he says um, there was a black woman who was working for a prominent white family and she you know, answered the phone and the person on the other end of the phone thinking that she was actually the, the lady of the house, whoever that was. And they don't say who, who it was. Mm-hmm. They said that we, they figured out, they've got the guy who killed, killed Helen Clevenger. And then it, and they say it was the degenerate son of, and then they say blank. Cause of course they can't print the name. Um, so we don't have a name. And so it all comes back to the son of a prominent white man in town who somehow keeps his name out of the papers, keeps himself from being even arrested or mentioned as a suspect, even though there's these rumors circulating throughout town. And I think it's because of these rumors that actually when the NAACP takes up Martin's case, they get funding for these appeals from both members of the white and black community in Asheville, because there is definitely a certain contingent of people that really feel like he is a scapegoat and um you know and the white community specifically are able to actually stand up and, and say something without like a huge fear of retaliation although there are huge arguments um between you know families friends about you know of people who are on one side versus the other i mean this is like daily uh conversation topics in Asheville, and so you know, once what's Martin has has been killed, um, then the, some of these rumors start coming out. And even the Clevenger family files a, a kind of a wrongful death lawsuit against the hotel. And even at that point, the hotel says, well, you know, we're not going to pay this because Martin Moore is innocent. So it wasn't our employee who did it. And we're starting our own investigation. Well, they end up settling that case for um, rather than 50 grand, which is what the Clevengers had asked for. They end up settling out of court for 6,000 or, or something around that. And that's kind of the last investigation into the case. So, and it, there's not much mentioned about it after that, except for, so, you know, in the center of these, uh, between the trial and the execution, all these true detective mystery, very sensational accounts come out in these magazines. Um, And that's where a lot of the kind of insider stuff comes from because it's, even though it's written by a journalist, it's always billed as this is Sheriff Brown's telling of the story, or this is Deputy Brown and Love Gudger, who was another deputy, his telling of the story. So you get the sense that these are the, the true stories from the law enforcement officers. And that's really where the, um, Erwin Pittman's statements come into play because they think they are geniuses for breaking the case open by uh, shifting the focus from white men 
to black men based on this statement. Like this is just a huge crack in the case. And that phrase is never repeated in the papers until it comes out in those magazine articles. I mean, even at trial, Erwin Pittman testifies on under oath that the transcript is, that's what I was wondering. There's not any of that racism uh, underlying that particular statement at trial under oath. So, you know, we get, we can go down some crazy rabbit holes, but it gets, it gets really interesting. So let's put on our detective hat for a second, because I think there is something worth just kind of pulling apart here for a second, but there's a little thread I'd like to tug on. You mentioned that decades after this is all faded from view, you have uh, this longtime employee, Booker T. Sherrill, uh, who gives us oral history and, as he's describing, he mentions that Pat Branch, the hotel manager, has these two sons. And this sort of ties in with the, th- the notion that you have the d- degenerate son of a prominent white citizen in town. Okay, right. I'm going to ask you a kind of a, of a I'm going to take a leap here and I'm going to ask you to do some sleuthing. Um, assume for the sake of argument that one of Pat Branch's two sons, you had Pat Jr. and you had Gene, okay? One of these two sons might have been a person of interest in the case that was never examined, never interviewed, never brought in, you know, but look, their father ran the joint. They probably knew their way around the hotel. They, you know, okay. Um, You said last week that witnesses observed this culprit, this assailant, run into Pat Branch's office, okay, and that that was sort of a prominent moment in his escape plan. That suggests maybe trying to get help from manager Branch, dad, right? Dad, I've done something wrong. I messed up. I need some help. Wasn't there. Okay, move on. Try to escape. Try to get clear. The question that I have for you, I mean, there's some sort of plausibility that matches up with that that fact pattern, right? Okay. What I really want to know, and this is where the the Pat Branch son theory falls apart for me, and I, or I, at least I run into kind of an obstacle, goes back to the murder weapon, right? If this was in fact Martin Moore's gun, we know by the shell casings he admitted he owned the gun; he had just loaned it to Limrati. How how do we explain how Martin Moore's gun was used by somebody else, such as Pat Branch's sons or someone else, on the night? Where where does that play into the the notion that you know this this shortish white assailant who we know was was sort of spotted, you know? Uh, with his really weird escape path, how, where does the gun come in? And where do, <laughs> I need the smoking gun here. Like, how does it work? I can't well, make it work. <laughs> so this is this is where a lot of interpretation comes in. But you're right, detective work here. And a lot of times, as historians, we like to talk about it being like detective work, um, digging through historical archives and papers. But so. Okay, we already have these rumors of this prominent white man coming in kind of throughout. And we see even in newspaper reports and they're always shoved like at the bottom of, you know, the article and the back of the paper about rumors of an arrest of the son of a prominent white man. um, But he was cleared and and they never name him. And so those rumors are kind of filtering through. 
And then there's this, yes, oral history much later, in, done in the 80s, 1980s, with Booker T. Sherrill, who had worked there forever. And, and he says, you know, he always brings up in every oral history he does the murder um, because it was such a huge thing in his life. And also because the day they arrested Martin Moore was his wedding day. And, and as an aside, he actually married Ruby Taylor, who was Banks Taylor's sister. And I haven't really found, you know, the, the, the super tie there, but there's, there's something there that I haven't been able to really pull apart so he remembers that day because it was also his wedding day. And he says in the interview, you know, we always thought Martin Moore was a scapegoat. We thought maybe the manager's son had something to do with it. And of course, he doesn't actually name which son. So there's two. And there, there's a significant age difference between them. The younger son is college age. He's probably home for the summer that summer. Um, there are also rumors that like that the managers that Pat Branch's son was working at the hotel that summer. And then he was never seen again. I've never seen that in any kind of primary documentation, but I've, I've heard that rumor before. And then the older son, Gene is a hotel manager, but he's working up in Winchester, Virginia. And what's interesting, and I never know whether or not, you know, Sheriff Brown has heard these rumors and that's why he ends up writing this letter, which is found in the archives at Swannanoa Valley Museum that he keeps. But he writes a letter to the chief of police of Winchester, Virginia, and says, will you look into Eugene Branch and let me know if he has a reputation for whiskey, women, etc." There's no record of whether he gets a reply. There's no record of why he's investigating Eugene Branch. Does he actually have an inkling that Eugene could be involved? Or is he just hearing these rumors and he feels like he needs to check it out? And then, of course, we think Pat Branch, the younger son, is in town. So, you know, he wouldn't have needed to maybe write a letter to investigate him. So we don't have a lot to go on. But to answer your, to actually go around and answer your yeah. question about the gun, there is a very small article in a <laughs> newspaper after Martin is executed that says something to the effect of Lim Roddy said he loaned the gun to the son of a prominent white man <laughs> during that time. And this is like a, another, it's just like a tiny newspaper article. And why in the world, like he would borrow a gun from Martin to give to a white man without them. Like, I mean, that, that really goes into the track of a huge conspiracy that, and, and a premeditated uh, murder or, or, or rape situation at that, that, you know, that he, that whoever, you know, this prominent white man, the son of a prominent white man was, had this intention to go in there and assault Helen Clevenger, needed a weapon to do it that wasn't tied to him. So asked, you know, his buddy Lim to acquire a weapon for him. So that's the scenario that potentially makes sense. But really, I mean, can you, it's just hard to envision a conspiracy of that magnitude within law enforcement. I mean, it's certainly not unheard of. Uh, you know, I think it's a lot easier to think about, well, they needed a scapegoat, so they found one. But like that, 
is the level of premeditation that's that's really striking. Well, and it is also the magnitude only grows when you realize that, you know, Helen had only been, Helen and Uncle Billy had only been in and out of that hotel for a few days, you know, their first trip, and then they come back and it happens. I mean, they were unknowns, right? They were total unknowns that this, this whole thing would have had to take in shape extremely quickly in order for that to be the case. And typically conspiracies are, uh, especially of that order, right? Conspiracies have have been brewing for quite some time. It's um, it's hard to imagine that they could have just pulled it off at lightning speed like that. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, anything is possible. Who who are we to I'm, say? Yeah. yeah, and especially when you know how the system works, like that. If you're gonna do this and you don't want to get caught and you want to pin it on someone, uh, you know, maybe that's that's how you do it. And it's it's just it's so. Like, it's already horrifying, but then to think about it in that context, just it's a whole other level of this planned, essentially, not only the planned, you know, at least assault of Helen, but also, you know, they knew what would happen to Martin. So then on another level, you know, there's a a whole other planned murder in that sense. And so it gets, it gets, you can go down some, some crazy spirals of uh of trying to figure this out but we know it wasn't as it was not as straightforward as uh as the law as the law justice was not carried out and thank you for taking us through all of this it is such a murky case and there are still so many questions left to be answered and you say that you're continuing your research on it and that you know you hope one day to uncover more of these sort of boxes of files that may shed light on certain aspects the last question that i have for you we've been doing a series on prominent women in true crime history Uh, in the past several weeks we have looked at a female vigilante, a lady named Helen Spence over in Arkansas. We have looked at a female perpetrator, a murderess, Emma Hepperman, up in Missouri. And now we're looking at a very, very prominent female victim, of course, with Helen Clevenger. I wanted to ask you, what impact did this case have on women's history of the day or women's history in that moment going forward? You know, it's, it's sad to think about. And and certainly I think we see this often, especially in that era, but I mean, even still moving into today is, is it's a very actually negative impact of this idea of white women being victimized by black men and the way that the system, but also our way of thinking has been shaped by media, by law enforcement and and thinking of that dynamic between, um, you know, if it's a white woman that was sexually assaulted and murdered or potentially sexually assaulted and murdered, you know, the prevailing thought was it had to have been a black man. And I mean, you see the incident incidences of, of lynchings going up, during this time um, and people fighting against it. And there was even talk of once Martin Moore was arrested, fear of a lynch mob arriving at the jail, you know, and, and in Helen's, in Helen's individual case as an individual, you know, she was, she had such a, you know, a promising future and, 
and she was beautiful. And so we think about that and what she may have done if she had been able to, if she had survived um, and gone on to, you know, work and have a family. And then we also kind of romanticize it in that way because she was a young white woman with such a promising future. But at the same time, like, would it have been any <laughs> less horrifying if she, you know, hadn't been all those things? Like if she had just been, uh, you know, a maid at the hotel or or some other person. I mean, certainly her case would not have been as covered if she was a different person. But I think it, that's worth thinking about as well. It's just the dynamic in women's history of, of who's valued, whose voices we hear, whose lives we hear about, and um, certainly why that is. I mean, if, you know, certainly we would know probably nothing about Martin Moore had he not been the one involved in this or about any of the other employees uh, at the hotel, you know, just because of the, the dynamics of the time. And I think we, we obviously still see a lot of those dynamics in play today. And it's a lot of what, you know, current movements in the last couple of years have really um, helped us start to contend with. Well, your your sensitivity to the lives of the dispossessed is on clear view in this book. And I wanted to just thank you for the, the way in which you wrote about that. It was very moving and very powerful. You have told such a compelling story and called attention to these injustices that we have to continue to work to overcome. So thank you. It has been so good to have you on the show and we really appreciate the time that you've taken out for us. Absolutely. Um, I'm happy to do it. I think it's it's certainly um, got some important implications for the 20th and 21st century. So um, I appreciate the time to talk about it. Thanks for listening. Our guest today has been Anne Chesky-Smith, author of Murder at Asheville's Battery Park Hotel, The Search for Helen Clevenger's Killer, published by the History Press. We're going to take a short break these next two weeks, but join us when we return for a brand new series just in time for summer vacation, which we're calling Great Escapes. True stories from American history of when criminals go on the lam. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other podcasts, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.